Until around 2001, General Motors produced a bunch of cars with door locking mechanisms that would wear out within a few years. Repeated use would allow any similar key to unlock the door with just a little bit of wiggling. At that time, I was a small-time thief, drug dealer, and a hustler, sort of a jack-of-all-trades. Once I discovered this little gem of wisdom, GM became my go-to vehicle on nights when I was out prowling. It was much easier, not to mention much quieter, to unlock the door and rifle through the interior than to smash out a window. We're almost there. You really think this is going to work? Grab the speakers from the back. I'll get the stereo out. This stereo's in here. Wait, got it. Let's go. And just like that, we were back out into the cool night air, running through a field in the dark, weighed down with 50 pounds of stolen electronics, bloodied and bruised, yet carrying our prize. It took us days of planning and hours of effort, all the while risking felony charges that could land us in prison for years, all for less than $200 of stolen shit, which we would hawk for drug money the moment we got home. The life of an addicted person in the United States is many things, but Romantic is not one of them. Hello, welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show, a podcast about things that get you high. I'm your host, Ben Boyce, and today I want to talk about crime. Not because I'm especially proud of the illegal things I did in my past, but because they happened, and in my case, as in the case of many young people who get in trouble with the law, it was a result of the war on drugs. I've talked a little bit in previous episodes about how the prison system creates criminals, whole cloth, from otherwise law-abiding citizens through money pits like the war on drugs, the criminalization of poverty, or the cash bail system. We usually don't notice until it gets out of control, like in Ferguson, where Michael Brown was killed by police in 2014. The Justice Department's subsequent investigation in Ferguson is worth reading. I'll link it, along with citations for all of the information I share today on the drjunkieshow.com blog for this episode. They found systemic racism deeply rooted throughout the Ferguson Police Department, supported by a revenue-generating scheme aimed at poor people of color. An average of three warrants per household per year were being issued to residents of Ferguson for things as petty as speeding or driving without a license. Law and order run amok. But Ferguson was not as unique as we would all like to believe. East Cleveland, Chicago, Baltimore, and more recently, Minneapolis with the murder of George Floyd. These kicking off events often lead to the exposure of an underbelly, which we really don't want to acknowledge exists. The prison industrial complex is invisible to rich white communities, while it's an unavoidable extortion trap in many poor communities of color. It's no wonder these communities struggle to establish any sort of trust or rapport with local police departments. They've been the targets of race and class-based arrests aimed at funneling money from poor people of color into the coffers of law enforcement. Tomorrow is a bit of a special day for me. It's August 18th, 2020, the 15-year anniversary from my last release from prison. And if somebody would have told me then where I would be now, I would have told them that they were full of shit because I knew I had the greatest chance of being right back in prison. It was pure luck and privilege that got me to where I am, to a position where I have a voice. The machine is designed to spit me out on a boomerang course. Four out of five of released prisoners go back for new crimes within a decade. And property criminals and drug users tend to have an especially hard time holding on to our freedom. 
The deck is stacked against me because the machine that stacks the deck is designed to stack it against me and a host of others who make their way to prison for all sorts of reasons. If you've been tuning in, you already know that the main reason for this show is harm reduction and destigmatization. But it goes much further than Narcan or clean needles. The goal of this show is also to share the word that we drug users and convicted people do just fine in the rare event that we're supported and we're loved. There is a pathway to redemption and to social restoration. I hope this message is one that reaches those who need it most. So here's the 15 years of freedom, along with the raw wounds caused by the incarceration that makes it feel like it only ended yesterday. Here's to the 80% of released convicts who recidivate and wind up back in prison in less than a decade because we haven't been given the tools to effectively manage our own lives. Here's to my people who are still stranded in the prison industrial complex. To everyone inside or on probation or parole. I'm currently part of a small team of volunteers who publish an annual nonprofit magazine called Captured Words Free Thoughts, which I'll also post a link to on the blog for this episode. Those on the inside deserve a voice, and that voice is often mind-blowing when it's given a space to speak. Check out the magazine and you'll see what I mean. That's Captured Words Free Thoughts. If you're in prison or you know somebody in prison, please send their poetry, prose, or artwork to drjunkieshow at gmail.com. You can find that address on our homepage, drjunkieshow.com. Today's show is about my path to and through prison. It only seems fair to let y'all know what I was up to before I started podcasting and teaching. So here's the situation. Our prison system is currently bleeding us dry, year after year, with nothing but poor results to show for it. We live in a country where 7 million people are currently under the thumb of the prison industrial complex. About a fifth of them for drugs, another fifth for stealing shit or doing something shady to get money, and around a sixth for public order offenses, DUI, probation violation, or weapons charges. Now, of course, all of these crimes are not drug-related, but a lot of them are. These three categories account for a full half of all state-level inmates in the United States. The average annual cost of housing a prisoner in the U.S. is 31 grand a year, more than many of us pay in rent on the outside. And the average cost of prosecution is hard to estimate accurately because the machine is designed to clog up if more than 5% of accused prisoners take their cases to trial. That's right, 95% of all charges are resolved with a guilty plea because the prosecutor offers the defendant an option. Face the full force of the state, or just say you did it and take a slap on the wrist compared to what we could do. Chandra Bazelko's case, from episode 13, Between Inmates, is a great example. So a full half of all state-level prisoners are locked up for drugs, theft, or public order offenses. The other half of the prison population is there for violent crimes, robberies, assaults, murders, and kidnappings, also frequently a result of the war on drugs. Many of these people either commit their crimes to get money for drugs, or while using street drugs to treat mental illness that ought to be treated by a doctor. This should go without saying, but when we're on day four of a cocaine binge or a meth tweakout, we're not mentally well. Just like you wouldn't be mentally well if you managed to go 100 hours without sleep. And many of us have underlying conditions which compel us to use in the first place, so we aren't exactly starting with a smooth sailing ship to begin with. Plus, as I remind listeners on every other episode, since cocaine and heroin are more expensive than gold, thanks to the war on drugs, people steal them, sell them, manufacture them, and sometimes kill for them. Whenever something that cost pennies to produce can be sold for dollars, desperate people will find a way to sell it. 
and since it's illegal, they will be forced to handle their own security, operating outside of the law. I mean, you can't exactly call the police when someone steals your kilogram of cocaine. So we build and pay for expensive narcotic units, and we buy military-grade assault vehicles to combat the violence we made sure would show up when we outlawed drugs and made them expensive. That's how the war on drugs works. These army-style units kick in doors and lock up so-called bad guys in prisons. Prisons which currently cost taxpayers around $80 billion every year. In the entire prison industrial complex, the jails, courts, judges, police departments, narco units, task forces, diversion programs, prison, probation offices, that totals more than $180 billion every single year. And we pay for it. You and I. Everyone who pays taxes, works a job, or makes a purchase requiring sales tax. Nearly $180 billion per year to lock people up, largely for crimes directly related to the war on drugs. Meanwhile, we bicker over increasing the $68 billion the Federal Department of Education gets every year. Our priorities as a country are clear. There are less than 350 million people in the United States, and every one of them pays more than $500 every year to lock up and torture people whom we've been told are dangerous criminals. And don't forget that nearly 1 in 10 prisons are currently private, which means that the state pays them a set dollar amount per inmate and then allows them to cut corners and buy in bulk, whatever they do to turn a profit after paying for inmate room, board, and treatment. And they do turn a profit. An average of $2,400 per inmate per year in the case of research I completed for my PhD a few years ago. Okay, I get it. We criminals are some unthoughtful assholes. We ruin people's days or weeks or sometimes their lives. And as a victim as well as a perpetrator, because as the old adage goes, there often is little honor among thieves, I understand that having your shit stolen is a pretty awful experience. I once had a gun stuck in my gut while my pockets were emptied. It's traumatic. But the point should be prevention, not retribution or torture, for one simple reason. Most inmates are going to be released someday. I don't want my stereo stolen tomorrow, and if I have to pay $31,000 this year to house an inmate, some of that money ought to go towards ensuring my stereo is safe next year, after he's released, so I don't have to house him again and again. In fact, fuck it, take a few more bucks if it means that in the long run, we can save on housing him the second time around. Before we get too far into this episode, I want to talk about shame, an emotion and a state of mind that defined much of my youth. Don't get me wrong, shame can be a powerful and important feeling. If you're currently thinking about stealing your neighbor's shit because it's nicer than yours, then hopefully you're also experiencing a bit of shame about making those plans. I'm not trying to romanticize my crimes. They were ridiculous risks for minimal gains, sometimes just a few bucks. The shame I fought through back then and now, as I share these stories, is very real, and it has an important evolutionary role to aid in our social bonding as a culture. We feel shame when we consider hurting or stealing from others because we don't want them to steal from us, and society works much better when we all abide by this golden rule. Luckily, I'm talking about 15-year-old crimes committed by a young man, me, who was making what he saw as a logical choice at the time given his life experience, his education, his support network, his wealth, and his religion. I haven't mentioned it yet, but I'm sure you've already deduced that I was not a wealthy man when these crimes were committed. I was so poor, in fact, that the small payout for this high-risk work seemed tempting. More important, and this is where it gets real, I'd also been exposed to so much shame for such a long period of time in my life 
that I'd established a tolerance to it. That shame came from everywhere. My friends, my church, my peers, my family, and most importantly, society as a whole. Public service announcements and DARE officers taught us all what to think of addicted people before we were old enough to even think about drugs. I was diseased. I had brought this on myself because we all saw those commercials that told us not to try drugs, even once. I was untrustworthy because those same public service announcements also taught people around us to clutch their pearls and change their locks. I lived in a sea of shame. So that shame that popped into my head that night when I considered stealing a stereo, or worse, the shame I imagined feeling at the possibility of getting caught while doing it, was minuscule. It was Vicodin on the heels of a heroin injection. I felt ashamed of nearly every aspect of my identity. So what was the difference if I got caught stealing? I was already an addicted person. I have to admit that if I could go back to that decision, if I could zap back to being that same kid in the same body with the same memories and the same set of tools for life, I would make the same damn decision. No doubt about it. Unless I took with me some additional information, some memories, or some tools for life, I would be the same kid. I would make the same logical decision as I had back then. And here's why this is important. There are plenty of people in that position today, getting ready to make those same sorts of choices that will fuck up years or decades of their lives. It's worth our time to talk about how this happens, and importantly, how to prevent it. Okay, so enough with the statistics. I said I was going to talk about me today, and specifically, my crimes. In late summer of 2004, I was arrested for a long list of identity theft crimes. They had fancy names like obtaining personal identification without the owner's consent, an illegal use of a financial transaction device, and each crime was often charged as multiple felonies. But they were all related to a string of larcenies over the course of a few months, much like the flashback at the beginning of this episode. At the height of my addiction and the low of my connection to my support group, I turned to mainlining heroin and cocaine, along with smoking fentanyl whenever I could get a hold of it. The more I used, the more of a mess I became. And the more of a mess I became, the more my network of lifelong friends and family members felt justified in leaning on that age-old narrative of how to treat a drug-addicted person. The only way most of us know. Tough love. Cut them off, lock them out, and change your phone number until they hit something called rock bottom until they really crash and burn. And without our support, which they need as humans, especially in times of mental illness and struggle, we do crash and burn. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy which allows our people to get off the hook for allowing it to happen. So think twice before you tough love your addicted friends and family members. We often wind up in terrible places that are entirely preventable. And rarely do those rock-bottom moments lead to so-called coming-to-God moments. More often, they lead to jail, into prison, into more trauma, into a permanent felony record. Throughout most of 2004, I found myself roaming the streets, looking for unlocked and unlockable cars with valuables in them. But cars don't always have expensive stereos and cash-filled wallets. Often I would come across credit cards or checkbooks, which I could use to purchase items that I could then hawk to my drug dealer or to the local pawn shop. Jewelry, video game systems, televisions, speakers, and each of them came with numerous felony charges if I were caught. And the worst part is that you can only get pennies on the dollar for things like that. So the day I got arrested at a shopping center in Battle Creek, Michigan, I was receipt hawking. After wandering around the parking lot for a few minutes and finding a few receipts that were from cash purchases, I would find the exact same items on the shelf inside the store, purchase them with a stolen credit card, and then return them using the cash receipts. 
That way I got 100% of what I stole. Receipt hawking is time consuming. The next time you leave the grocery store, check your receipt and you'll see why. Every item is listed with an abbreviated name, usually enough to steer you to the right department where you can begin scanning for the exact same UPC code, but no more than that. I was staring intently at a barcode when an officer came around the corner and asked to talk Remain to me. Silent. Anything you say will be used against you in a court of law. I didn't even have time to dump the pocket full of stolen credit cards from half a dozen other heists, so he lucked out. And from there it blew up fast. Dozens and dozens of charges piled up. More each day as detectives would take my picture to a security department and compare it to unsolved fraud footage, making match after easy match. My prison sentence was one to five years, which was actually pretty light considering I already had a record half a mile long. I was first arrested in high school for smoking weed. Well, that and cussing at the principal for dressing me down. A few years later, I was arrested and convicted of larceny from a motor vehicle, the story that started this episode and netted me less than 200 bucks. Then embezzlement, I changed the shipping labels on half a dozen computers, televisions, and other valuables while unloading a delivery truck for a major U.S. delivery corporation. Then a gun charge when I passed out in a parking lot with an illegal pistol in my lap. I was still only 20 years old at this point. I hadn't yet had a legal drink, but I'd already been addicted to drugs for half a decade. After the gun charge was an attempted distribution of marijuana, then I got caught in a stolen car, and then the shit hit the fan with the string of identity theft cases. I thumbed through my police reports in preparation for this episode, and it was surreal to note the multiple times I told detectives and officers that I was addicted to heroin, that I needed help. You would think it would have been obvious even if I hadn't mentioned it, given the crimes I was committing. As a 40-year-old, looking back, this is maybe the saddest part. It would play out exactly the same today as it did back then, because little's changed. The system is designed to ignore personal issues whenever possible in favor of keeping the machine running smoothly. If you've never been to a daily arraignment, the first court date everyone gets the day after they're arrested, you should go. With COVID, a lot of them are now being held online, and your jurisdiction may allow public access. So if you can, check them out. It's this efficient, impersonal process where they shuffle people through, sometimes less than 10 seconds each, on the worst day of our lives. They bring us before a judge, read us a long list of rights, and then demand that we plead guilty or innocent on the spot. Hurry up. Make a decision. On to the next. And that's how our legal system is designed. To be cold, impersonal, and efficient. To get the job done. To make sure that drugs are expensive, and that those who find themselves dependent will become desperate. Then we lock those folks up when they commit petty crimes to get their drugs. And whenever possible, we make their addiction invisible. A lot of people have empathy for an addicted person, but everybody hates a thief. Our criminal justice system is not broken. It's working just fine. It was originally designed to eat poor people and people of color, to label them as felons, the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander has aptly put it, and then keep them coming back after release. We've updated the window dressing, but the end product is exactly the same as it was 250 years ago, or 100 years ago. Disproportionate amounts of poor people and people of color being chewed up and spit out, then funneled back through again. And if they ever do manage to actually remain free, the new Jim Crow, a felony record, never goes away. We're considered second-class citizens for the rest of our lives, to quote Michelle Alexander one more time. I threw a bunch of raw statistics at you near the beginning of this episode. Numbers that should be both shocking and infuriating. But it isn't just guilty people who are forced into desperate places by the war on drugs. 
Our prison system is also designed to lock up innocent people without a second thought. The Innocence Project does great work that shouldn't even be necessary, freeing folks who have been ground through the gears of a system designed to care less about a defendant's guilt than about their possibility of being convicted. 173 people on death row have had their convictions thrown out and their names cleared in the last 50 years alone. Around 4% of all cases, including death row cases, are false convictions. That's literally hundreds of thousands of people who have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. It gets worse. We now have an abundance of junk science being used regularly to throw people in prison when cases are not ironclad. Things like blood spatter analysis, arson investigations, or so-called crack babies, which are not a real thing, tread evidence, and bite mark identification. These titles and so-called forensic sciences are being exposed as flimsier with each passing year but they remain in prosecutors' toolkits because the machine is designed to look backwards, to precedent, instead of forward, to the future, to new discoveries and updated science. Once a piece of evidence is allowed, it remains admissible in all future cases until something earth-shattering happens and a high court overrules it. So every time someone is convicted with blood pattern evidence, or with the testimony of so-called bite experts or arson investigators, the list of criminals who could have their cases thrown out, if that sort of evidence is ever deemed inadmissible, grows a little bit longer, and the system becomes just a little bit harder to update. So we have a criminal justice system built upon the foundation of free will informing our actions, a foundation which is shaky at best and clearly flawed in its simplicity. I wouldn't have committed any of my crimes, not a single one, if I had had money or affordable drugs at the time. It's pretty obvious that a large group of the population will never even be tempted to do something so desperate because they'll never be so broke and in need of a $20 fix to stop sweating and shitting. What sort of free will is that? I love the free will debate, and I could talk about it all day, but since this is a monologue episode, I'll instead refer you to one of my intellectual heroes, Sam Harris, whose brilliance is matched by his brevity in his book called Free Will, which is less than 70 pages long, and yet manages to completely obliterate any notion of free will as we currently think about it. The last thing I want to talk about today is the show, and specifically where it came from and where it's going. You'll notice that there are no commercials, depending on which streaming service you're using, because this is not a sponsored podcast. I decided to do this show for personal reasons, some of them admittedly selfish. It was a therapeutic tool for me to work through the pain of losing a loved one to the war on drugs last year, as well as a way for me to keep my sanity when we all found ourselves trapped inside under COVID quarantine. But like I said at the beginning of this episode, the biggest reason is harm reduction, and along with that, hope. I knew in the depth of my being that I was a worthless piece of shit the second I realized I was an addicted person. And by the time I wound up in prison, I knew that I always would be. It didn't matter that it wasn't true, because in my heart, it was. When I thought about what convicts do after release, I knew a few, if any, examples of professors, police officers, lawyers, government employees, service members, authors, CEOs. But we are out there. There is hope. And the knowledge that we can do well after release is important to share. If I ask you to think of a junkie or a convict or a thief, a particular image probably pops into your mind, informed by your own unique experiences, for sure, but also by the culture in which you've lived, the social soup in which you were immersed and whose flavor you inevitably soaked up. Your image might be Robert Downing Jr. in Less Than Zero, 
Or it might be Tupac or Tim Roth in Gridlocked. Or the guy you saw last night on the news after he robbed a local gas station. Most of us don't maintain relationships with people who are addicted, so the only images we have to understand their lives tend to come from TV and from film, spectacles of polished-up stereotypes and glamorized violence. And that image has a lot to do with how you probably feel about policy. Do you think that junkies should be locked up, or do you think that addicted people ought to be paid a living wage and given free drugs? Well, that probably depends on how much you think of drug users, and if your image is anything like Hollywood's image, or the public school's image, or the church's image, then you probably think they should be locked up, maybe even for their own good, and definitely for the good of the public. These opinions don't fall out of the sky. They're the fruit of a culture of hypermedia, cultivated, fertilized, trimmed, and pruned during every waking moment. We don't get many messages that portray addicted people or felons or thieves as boring, fact-spewing buzzkills who want to rethink criminal corrections, as people like me. Instead, we get the fear-inducing image of a junkie who will steal your purse and stab you in a fit of detox. It's no wonder we feel content locking them up and throwing away the key. You know, when I started putting this podcast together, there was a lot of support, but I struggled with going about it this way. The model says find a sponsor and then start putting out content that they approve. But I'm not here for money. I'm here because there is someone who needs to hear this. So share it with your people, or at least share the message that there is a way forward after prison and or addiction and or trauma. And if you're an addicted person who has a platform, no matter how small, Use it to spread the word that there is life after addiction or incarceration. There is life after life. The war on drugs can end, but it won't end until we rethink our ideas of what a drug user looks like. And that won't happen until we update the awful conditions we force on drug users. Underworld markets, inflated prices, threat of arrest, tough love, and punishment in place of treatment. These things all need to go away. Don't fall prey to that feeling of hopelessness, because there's no shortage of solutions here. Your congressional representatives and local politicians pass laws because they think that's what their constituents want them to do. So write them, call them, and email them, and tell them that you support legislative efforts to end the war on drugs, to stop locking people up for drug crimes, and let them know that you stand behind harm reduction efforts like needle exchanges or injection rooms, and remind them that these things actually decrease the amount of crime, overdose, public disturbance, and disease related to illegal drug use. And never underestimate the power of grassroots efforts. You can buy a box of hypodermic syringes from your local pharmacy. And as long as your local and state laws don't forbid it, you can pass them out to addicted people yourself. Talk to the homeless you encounter in your daily life. Not as objects or as sad stories, but as people. Many of them are addicted because the system is built to funnel addicted people to the streets and to jail in high numbers. A bag of clean needles or a package of alcohol swabs may be the difference between a homeless addicted person catching a disease or staying healthy. And if you're completely opposed to helping drug users safely use drugs, socks, water, toilet paper, and baby wipes are all great things to carry with you, along with cold hard cash. Homeless people and addicted folks need all of these things. We can make small changes to speed up the movement from prohibition to compassion. Do your homework, learn about drugs and drug users, and then share that information with your people, and find a way to let the addicted people around you know that you care. We need it. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce.